Welcome to episode 60 of Texic, hosted by myself, Justin Vincent, and Jason Roberts. And on today's show, we have a very special guest with us, Peter Cooper, who's creator of the fantastic Coda.io, and also author of Beginning Ruby, and owner of the Ruby Inside blog, amongst a whole bunch of other entrepreneurial stuff. So, Peter, great to have you on the show. Yeah, great to be here. So, Jason, uh, what's the backstory on how we met Peter? Well, I, I guess I stumbled across uh, Coder.io somewhere along the line, and uh, I, I don't know, I, I mentioned it on our show a couple of times because I liked it a lot, and it, it turned out uh, when I emailed Peter just to tell him that we had mentioned the, the uh, Coder.io on, on the show, he said, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm uh, actually listening to TechZing. I'm like, really? <laughs> <laughs> I'm so used to people not knowing what it is that when someone actually listened to it, sort of surprised. So that's uh, that's how uh, I guess I got in contact with Peter. Um, and uh, by the way, Peter, we really appreciate you coming on the show with such last uh, with such little notice. Um, we had uh, I had emailed a couple of people and uh, expecting to get a response, and I never even heard back from like three people I emailed. And so we were kind of stuck. Oh, um, well, you, just can't, you just can't get the talent nowadays. I guess. You know, you know what it is, I think? I was emailing angel investors. Oh. A- angel investors are just too full of themselves, I think. Those they, guys they, have money, though. Yeah, they got money, and they, 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 they're just, they just they don't care. So anyway, I really appreciate you, uh, you coming on and, um, at last minute. And you know one thing you said, which was kind of interesting, I, 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 when I – First, when I was emailing with you, I said, "Hey, you know, we can do it an earlier time because you know this is midnight your time." But you, you said you stay up till like seven in the morning. <laughs> is that yeah, really quite normal? Yeah. Wow, that's yeah. Uh, that's insane. You know, what the other thing is great about this sh- show, Justin, is yeah. we actually have someone with a real English accent as opposed oh. to sort of fake English accent. Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> well, because I'm born and bred LA, I am. You, you sound like you're from Boston compared to Peter, I think. Right. Okay, so listen, So something else you forgot to mention there, Jason, is that the the real synchronicity and strangeness of it was that after you contacted Peter, you found out that he was actually a very old friend of someone I used to work with. Right. And we, and we, we hadn't even known that. And who was this? So, uh, Dave Hunt. Wow. Yeah, it's a small world. Yeah. That's cool. So, cool. um... Well, why don't we start, uh, Peter, you tell us a little bit about your background. I mean, you know, Justin described a few things that you've done. You're, you've done a lot, actually, so it's going to take us a while to get through it. But what's your background? How did you get into coding and technology? Um, it's one of those really stereotypical um, geeky answers, unfortunately. Uh, I, I don't really remember a time when I wasn't doing this stuff, uh, just because my dad was uh, a bit of a sort of a technical nut back in the 80s and was always buying sort of uh, computers like the the BBC Micro, which uh, Justin might uh, remember. Oh, I remember um, the BBC yeah. Model B. Yeah, very very popular back in the UK in the 80s. Um, good mm-hmm. machines as well. And, uh, you know, he was into buying all that kind of stuff. So literally from, like, you know, when I was about, like, perhaps two years old or so, like, this sort of stuff was being put in front of me. I'd just play around with it. And, you know, so I don't really remember anything before, like, having a keyboard in front of me at some, you know, time of the day or another. Um... But yeah, so I, I didn't really have any particular ambitions to become a, a coder sort of later in life or anything. It was just something I, I dabbled with for fun um, and just built up over the years. But I was thinking of actually becoming a lawyer initially um, as oh, an actual geez. career progression. So yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I just worked on bits and pieces as time went by. And I actually uh, I ended up leaving school at 16. Uh, I got a job in the, the then nascent uh, web design um, industry in London in the late 90s. Well, wait, hold uh, on a second. Justin, you left school right around that same age, right? Yeah, uh, yeah, just before, yeah. So is that not an yeah. uncommon thing? Um, in, yeah, so that would have been 90, 98. 
So uh, it, it, J- Jason's just asking, does that happen a lot in England? What, people leaving at 16? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think it's only recently that I think the number went over 50% or something of people actually... Well, I, I mean, it's different because in the UK you have, you know, what we call college, uh, usually right. between 16 and 18, which isn't the same thing as... Uh, university which then you do from 18 onwards which i know in america can also be called college right um so i don't know about the figures for that but they say it's something like 50 percent of people go to university now so uh, you know it's quite a large number but then obviously it's a large number of people that don't ever ever make it that far that's right um, yeah. so yeah it seems to be growing over time but it wasn't particularly unusual at the time and um, it's perhaps unusual that i didn't end up going just because I, I did quite well at school but i just sort of got sucked into the whole industry at that point and it seemed you know, it seemed kind of crazy to push ahead with education when I could do that, you know, later in life and sort of um, play well, around with what you know, the new tech at the time. You didn't get any pushback from your parents at the time who said, whoa, 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 that's crazy. You're not you're going to college, mister. <laughs> you know? uh, no, not at all. I mean, they were actually pushing me. They were saying you're not going to um, sort of sit around for six weeks until, you know, the college starts. You need to go and get a job. So I did that. And then that's kind of what led me down that path. So it was their fault, if anything. Um, at least that's what I can tell them. But uh, now they've always just wanted me to take whatever risks I, you know, made sense, and they'd be there for me if it didn't work out. But uh, it sort of did in the end. Well, what did you get? Okay, so you 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 got into the industry. I mean, so how did how did being in the industry keep you from going on to college or university? I mean, did you get sucked into the entrepreneurial thing, or were you just working for companies at the time and making making a good living and having fun? Well, I, I worked for the the first design agency. I you know, went to for just one month. Um, it was just a bit crazy, and I was a bit naive at the time. And then I went on to a second job um, for about nine months, and then that was the end of my sort of full-time career um, in every sense. Uh, so from about '99 onwards, I've been self-employed the whole time. And I think it was just because I had leads and contacts, and you know, could actually make a good run at being self-employed from day one. It wasn't a real struggle to get it going. Right. Um, it eventually became so during like the, the dot-com crash because I didn't have any, uh, like a lot of my, you know, people that I was working with went out of business even. And, um, you know, the, there wasn't so much opportunity, but then sort of about 2004, 2005, everything just exploded at that point and uh, it was back on my feet again. Right. And, and uh, you know, you uh, look reading through your sort of uh, background on your website, it, you actually had sold a site even back as early as 99. Right, you built up and sold a site. Um, no, not not back in '99. Um, perhaps I've perhaps I've got a typo on there or something. But uh, no, uh, the first thing I actually built up and sold was um, a site called uh, what's it again? Code Snippets, which was built with Rails. So that was built in um, early 2005, and I sold that in 2007 to a company called DZone. Um, which is at dzone.com. They are like a sort of like a dig for developers, I guess. And that was the first oh. thing I actually built and sold. And so, so well, okay, you know what I was confused about? It said that you were editor of eBoz, which was acquired by uh, iTunes in 2000. Yeah, my friend, my friend owned that site. I didn't actually own the site. I was just the editor for the site, okay. um, and he was like the owner of it. So, um, yeah, I, I think that's probably worded a, a bit poorly. I should probably change that. No, it's just I don't know how to read. That's the problem. <laughs> so, and it also said you were editor of Webpedia, which was acquired in uh, by Internet.com in '99. So, yes. did being a part of these these I guess smaller companies that were acquired give you a sense of how companies can be built up and acquired? Did it just seem because I know for myself when I think of companies be acquired, I don't really know how that process happens. 
You know, like how do you sell a company? I mean, it just seems like this sort of opaque process. Um, does go, does being a part of it or going through it give you some visibility into the reality of it? Nope. Uh, not at all. I mean, in those two examples with the the eBoz and the Webpedia, I was pretty much in the dark. I was, um, you know, I, it was almost like a full time job for me being the editor and directing the content and directing writers and things like that, and you know, the, the ins and outs of what happened behind the scenes of the the acquisition was something that never even came up. It was a bit like if you know you work full time for any company, like a you know an IBM or whatever, and suddenly your company gets acquired, you don't really know the the behind the scenes deals. Uh, of what goes on but I did eventually get to learn a bit more about that through the two sites that I sold. Can you talk us through the the kind of the process of the sale of um, Code Snippets? Yeah, um, Code Snippets was doing okay. It was um, making about uh, I think about $800 to $1,000 a month on AdSense which knowing coders and the way they don't click on links was actually quite good for the time uh, but I just wanted to kind of get rid of it because I, I just didn't really have any sort of strong use for it and it was just kind of sitting there and uh, I think I think at the time I was wanting to buy um, a house with my then girlfriend now wife uh, so it would have been useful to have a, a, a bit of capital floating around so I had a friend who um, is he was quite a, a bit of a bigwig in the hosting industry but he's moved on to other things now and he was looking for sort of small sites that he could buy on the side and build up and he's like oh yeah I'll buy the, the code snippets site and um, and sort of gave named a price, and I said, "Oh, yeah, that's okay." Um, he's like, "But you know, if you think you can get, get a better price for it, then sort of you know go ahead. But otherwise, I'll sort of you know buy it in a week's time or whatever." And I was fine. So I emailed just a few people that I thought might have been interested, which included the guy from D Zone, a guy called Rick Ross, and he was interested. And he named a price. He said, "You know, agree right now. I'll you know wire the money over tomorrow. The whole thing will be done." You know, very quick. There wasn't. I think there was a contract, but it was. It was just so quick and breezy. It was a very, you know, informal way of doing it, and it's not a very common way of selling right. sites, to my best what? of my knowledge. But he trusted me, so it just happened. Yeah, I guess if you're if you if you're doing a deal with somebody you know and are friendly with, and also if it's if it's just like a something you own completely, right? There's no investors or any other people. You can it can be informally done, right? I mean, it's like selling. Well, a car he didn't know the guy from Dizan. Didn't didn't you say you knew well, him? We, we we were kind of acquaintances. We weren't like you know we hadn't. Uh, I don't think we'd even talked on you know talk on Skype or anything like that. We okay. we were just kind of knew of each other. So okay. yeah, um, but but uh, just the fact that it was sort of like a, a one man company that you could uh, you could do a you could do a deal like that. I guess. Yeah, uh, pretty much. It was just um, you know uh, f- from a technical and tax point of view, it was a it was a sale of a, a group of business assets which. Um, sort of made up this separate business of sorts, even though it wasn't incorporated separately. Um, you can sort of collect together a bunch of business assets that have their own independent sort of form of income and sell that as a um, you know group of business assets for tax purposes. So it worked out great. Was the other sale easy and breezy? But the other sale was what Feed Digest. Yes, that was, um, that was around the same time, huh? Are you sold? That yeah, it was several months later, actually. Yeah, um, I think uh, Code Snippets was in the February, and that was on in the August. But it took about, I think it probably took about three months to put that one together. Um, there wasn't a significant amount of legal or anything involved, uh, like you would get with many situations. Um, but it was a little bit odd because it was a, it was kind of like a Russian company, but with 
a Western um, sort of financial front, I guess. Because it's oh, I way, read your blog post about yeah, this. The, the way Russians do business is a little bit odd um, in the West sometimes. Just because, not because there's anything shady going on, but it, because it helps them to have a um, like a Western corporation to to deal with other you know Western corporations. Um, so I sort of sold it to that. Um, so it wasn't too arcane. There was no sort of uh, Russian forms that had to be signed or anything like that. Right. So that, that, that was that was not too difficult either. It just took time. Now, well, how did how did that whole process get started? Well, just wrapping up the story, sort of like really, you know, from the start. Um, you know, feed feed digest was just a, a syndicate, a, a feed syndication and republishing service. You could take a feed like my delicious uh, items and sort of repurpose them and put them on my blog automatically um and that was running for a couple of years um you know it ended up making several thousand dollars a month by the end which um i was kind of disappointed by but you read the article that i was i wrote um, just because i I just didn't charge enough um but yes the the acquisition um it was a game just like with the code snippets someone came along sent me an email said do you want to sell this and it literally was just that it was like you know oh are you ever interested in selling this and it just went from there. It was just, you know, emails cascaded from there. It's like, well, okay, why? Possibly, uh, you know, and they're like, well, we're interested. They're like, you know, what, what sort of figure would you put on it? And so I sort of worked out a figure. And, you know, it's just, just a lot of haggling, really. And um, it was, again, them getting in touch with me. I didn't actually plan to sell it at all. Now, was it was the sale more about the, um, the revenue it was generating? Was it more about the technology or some combination? Do, do you have any idea what they were thinking or where they, where, what the value was that they were looking at? I don't really know, unfortunately, but just looking at the things that they've got, because um, I mean, at the time, if you search for their company name, the main thing they were selling was uh, like shareware for, I think, photo editing and stuff like that, which doesn't really tie in with um, republishing RSS feeds. But since then, they've got, they own quite a lot of sites that sort of come up when you Google for things like um, meta directories of software and um, web apps and things like that. They own a lot of directory type sites. Uh, and I think they wanted the technology to partially, A, offer it as, um, you know, just to keep offering it in the way I had and make a small amount of income from it. And they do charge more than I did, so hopefully they're doing better than I was. Um, but other than that, I think they were using it to republish a lot of different feeds into their sites, and they perhaps didn't, you know, know how best to do that and wanted a more full-scale system because I, I know that their sites, you know, do get millions of page views a, a month and so on. So they just wanted the technology, but run it as a business as well in the background. Well, how? explain to me a little bit about how the business model of Feed Digest worked. Well, essentially, the people that were interested in these kind of services were webmasters mostly. Okay. Um, like the, our, our sort of biggest customer was the Denver Post, which is one of the, the biggest U.S. newspapers. And they used it to sort of pull in different RSS feeds from different places, mix them together, and then republish them in lists on their site. And it was all links to their own content because it was just a way of perhaps portalizing their front page a bit. Um, and so those guys were, you know, paying a reasonable amount per month. But then everyone else, the smaller webmasters, um, were paying an annual fee. And the reason for that is because at the time, um, I think PayPal, they just didn't offer the features for doing the recurring payments quite so well as they do now. Right. So it was more of a manual process. So I thought, well, I want to get people in for a year rather than sort of hassle them every month that they need to pay. Um, so it just seemed to make sense to do it an annual payment. But in retrospect, that's not such a good idea because uh, sort of psychologically, 
something like a, a ten dollars a month seems a lot less than a sixty dollars a year, even though you add up the figures and it's not. Um, it, you can sort of it seems like a, a smaller amount of money just because the number's lower. And I think that's where a, the, one of the biggest flaws was in the whole thing, is that it really should have been a monthly service. But I was charging peanuts, you know, annually just to sort of get people through the door. Well, how how did you get? Uh Feed Digest kickstarted. I mean, you know, a few thousand dollars a month. I mean, well, that's not, you know, huge. That's that's a reasonable amount of income. How did you get your user base kickstarted? More than well, I've got with Plugio. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, well, the, the whole um, sort of reason this whole project started was because I was using Delicious, and it was it was right back at the start of Delicious. Not many people were on it, and I just really craved a service like that and just fell in love with it instantly but i did want the links on my blog so i created a cgi script in Perl because that was my sort of main language i guess for the several years before that point uh created a script in Perl. it just took the rss feed from delicious um put it you know it just repurposed it into an html template it was all hard coded and off, off it went uh and that script ran every single time so i went to my blog uh, it's really scrappy but very 2004 and it just grew from there. Like I realized, oh, hang on, I'd perhaps like to put different feeds in, and then perhaps um, I could let people share this uh, piece of JavaScript around and put their own RSS feeds into the uh, query string and so on. And uh, eventually, sort of, you know, hundreds of different people were trying it out and emailing me and saying, oh, this is a good idea, you should extend it a bit further. Um, and I did extend it further into sort of a semi product called RSS Digest, which no one, you didn't have to sign up for. It was literally just a box. You went to the page, there was a box, you put in the RSS feed URL, um, and it gave you back a piece of JavaScript code you could put on your page. Really simple. Um, and I said, you know, if you like this, give, um, donate some money to me. Um, and I think over the course of about four months, there was about, I don't know, $5,000 or something of just donations, which uh, for donations was pretty cool. So I thought this, you know, this could be serious. So I turned it into Feed Digest. I think I just literally crammed on it for a month, like the whole thing, uh, just rebuilding it from scratch. Um, and I had a guy approach me a few weeks before launch, uh, a guy called Kelly Smith, who is sort of now runs a like an incubator sort of angel funding um, outfit of sorts called Curious Office. And they put in some money. Um, but luckily, it turned out I actually made a profit from month one, and um, it just went from there. Well, how was the, what was the what was the market? Uh, the most interesting thing to know is how how did the marketing get going? How did people find out about it? See, that's a good question. It's one of those things where, like, if I try and think back, it's it's really hard to remember what were the things that really kicked it off because. Nowadays, I'd use things like Twitter and you know Hacker News and things like that, but they just didn't exist right. in 2005. So it's hard to say. I think a big part of it was the um, group of users who um, had you know played with the um, the donationware version. So they were you know most of the first people to sign up. So that was a big kick. And I believe one of those guys was um, Marshall Kirkpatrick who's now, I'm not sure of his exact job title, but he's one of the uh, the big cheeses at um, Read Write Web. Yeah, he and, used to be a writer at TechCrunch, right? That's where he started? Yeah. Where he first um, got a big name? I think we, I think Feed Digest did actually get mentioned um, sort of in the footnotes of a, a couple of TechCrunch posts. Um, but I think it was on Read Write Web. I think he ended up writing the profile. Um, it might have been another site. It might have been mentioned on Mashable or something like that. But either way, it was one of the people that, um, was in the sort of the, the donation stage. Um, you know, a few people did do blog posts about it, and it sort of just kicked off enough people to keep coming through the doors to then, 
you know, have the, the snowball effect. Okay, I've got a question. Um, when, you, when you made the sale to the Russian company, uh, was that enough to make a profit and pay back the guys who'd invested the money in the first place? Yes. Um, yeah, there's actually no way I would have sold it if that couldn't have happened because otherwise I'd just been throwing a, a business. I could have probably, you know, just I could have kept going because it was making a profit. It just was not a profit enough to um, hire other people or, you know, to to really pile, you know, more money into it. Um, so yes, it definitely it definitely paid its way, um, and it didn't make me a millionaire or anything like that. But um, it was a you know it was a reasonable six figure sale, um, you know paid back the investors um, and uh, sort of gave me some you know capitals that then that I didn't have to sort of focus on client work after that. That was pretty much the the end of that, uh, and I've been sort of being able to fidget around and do my own thing since without sort of worrying too much. Um, but I have to worry a little bit, but, uh, you know, I don't like to, don't like to, um, be too comfortable, but, um, it's funny, Jason, a six figure sale and that's just off a 2000, uh, revenue. Oh no, it was higher than that. Oh, no, the, oh, that was the other, that was the other one, was it? Oh, right. Yeah. No, no, the, the code snippets was 800 to a thousand a month. Um, and feed digest, it jumped up and down a lot, but, um, I would say it was about several thousand a month by the end. Right. So, yeah. Huh. Now, I guess you because you, you wrote an article about. I think that's where I first um, noticed your blog. Um, the, the the article that that got some traction on Hacker News was uh, entitled Three Years Ago I Sold My Startup Because I Was an Idiot." Yeah, <laughs> which is a great great title, by the way. And yeah, I think that, I got a lot of points too. Did they get over a hundred points on Hacker News? Yeah, it was quite a few. Yeah, it got got, it got some got some traction. It was it was, an, it was a good article. I, I enjoyed it, and it was um, you know it was totally apart. I didn't even realize that that you, the author of that article, were the same person that created uh, Coder IO. So I was kind of confused about all that. It all kind of came around, and really. Um, so it, it, in the article, though, you talk about how one of the reasons you sold it was because you were kind of young. I mean, you were you kind of regretted it because you just didn't feel like you knew a, a, enough of, as an entrepreneur. And what do you? I mean, how, what do you feel about? It? I mean, could you maybe go through that a little bit? And what what are the lessons learned? And and what would you do differently in the future? Say, if you had, you know, something like. Uh, feed digest that's making a few thousand a month well the first thing i think that the, the whole word idiot was perhaps interpreted in a slightly odd way by it just not by everyone but by a few people they kind of um thought it was me sort of uh, running myself down or actually thinking i was you know stupid um <laughs> rather than, well, you, i mean i you know I there's always going to be such that people they're going to yeah. overreact to stuff oh you yeah know? yeah i definitely you know, use the like, word idiot lightly yeah, um, it's like yeah, it's you know, I was a doofus. Like you know, that's my, maybe what you would say um, in the US to get the, the right tone that I was aiming for. I think it's fine. I just think there's a couple. There's some people who are just way or way too sensitive. I think you're right. I say that oh, I was an idiot. I should have done this. I should have done that. It doesn't mean that I actually think I'm an idiot. I just think I, I did make the best decision at that point. In you time. see, the English word is plonker, but that wouldn't translate to America. <laughs> so basically, he had to say idiot. Right. No, I think it worked. I, I think if you had if you had said um, I did make a good decision when I sold my startup, I don't think that would have made it to the front page of Hacker mm. News. To be honest. <laughs> so that actually that actually wasn't the first title for that um, post. I actually did change it um, about ten minutes after I published it. I can't remember what the first one was, but um, it was a lot more tame, like you were saying. But uh, yeah, I mean, in terms of things that I learned from that, I mean, it was literally a, a big ex- learning experience. It didn't feel like that at the time, but. You know, sort of looking back at it with a, a little bit more wisdom. You know, it was there were so many things I picked up from that, not just business wise, but uh, technology wise as well. Because 
it was really an exercise in how to scale a, a MySQL database to sort of areas it perhaps shouldn't go or at least shouldn't go under my control. Um, <laughs> and it, it kept running pretty well. So it was, it was the first sort of high availability, high traffic system that I'd ever developed and had to maintain. And I just learned the whole thing you know, by the seat of my pants. So technology-wise, there was so much I learned. But on the business side of things, I just learned a lot about um, definitely not the promotion because that seemed to work for itself on uh, Feed Digest, which I've realized in retrospect was quite lucky because other projects I've done since then, I've had to work a lot harder on that side of things. Um, do, you, wait, do you think that's because there are more people who are promoting their stuff? It's just more noise? Um, why do you think it's harder to get get that traction? Or do you think you just were lucky because... Uh, um, he hit on a real need. He hit on a big problem that a lot of people wanted an answer for. I mean, is that, yeah, is was, that true? Do you think that's thing. it? Or is it, Mar- it, or is it well, because Marshall Kirk- Kirkpatrick just happened to, t- to find in- it interesting and happened to write about it? And, and that it's, was it's sort of- certainly he certainly wasn't just him. Um, you know, he had a, a good part of it, but uh, no, I think it was because RSS at the time was, you know, people were just really excited about RSS back in two thousand four, two thousand five. It was a real big deal. Um, you know, it was how we were going to read all of our content forever and a day after that, and um, you know, tools that were related to RSS were. Um, very slow to come out at the time just because there wasn't that whole atmosphere of um, people, you know, constantly launching mini startups and things because it required a lot more work and uh, effort than perhaps it does now. Um, whereas now, you know, sort of uh, people sort of launch startups in like a six hour coding exercise. They slap it up on Hacker News and go, wow, look at this new startup I've made. And it's just really just like a tiny web app that's a chat app in Node.js or something. Right. Um, back then, it was it was more of a bigger deal to say, oh, look, I've made this and I've released it. So I think that counted for a lot. Um, and especially the fact that it was, it was a very hot topic at the time, but one that not many people were really um, jumping into in the, the re, sort of the republishing side of it, which I did. But a lot of people as well, I think, the affiliate marketers and the people who are trying to work with Google and get high rankings, uh, this would be the perfect kind of system for them where they could repurpose sites and create new sites. And um, Mm. for want of a better word, in some ways, almost like a spam site they could potentially do. I'm not saying that everyone did. But I'm just saying that that's another uh, another big market I could think for a product like that. It's probably not the very, I, most. I forgot remote. about that actually. That was um, <laughs> you reminded me of actually like what half the customer base were about. Right. Um, that was actually a massive, massive deal at the time um, because I think that was the sort of time in SEO when people did realise that oh, if we keep if you keep updating a website, Google will crawl it more often and give it better rankings and stuff like that. And so people wanted automatically updating content at the time. And um, so I was very quickly hassled not to just offer a JavaScript um, include to bring stuff in, you know, RSS feeds into your page, but to offer uh, an HTML file so that you um, it, it had like a piece of PHP or ASP or there were several different languages um, of code that would then pull in the HTML file from Feed Digest and put it straight into their code so it looked just like uh, it was on their site. And none of the other... RSS syndication services that were similar to Feed Digest at the time, um, and there were only a couple, uh, none of them did that. So this was the first to do that, and so it really took off with those people as well. What, what, were, yeah, the other ones that are, what were the other ones that were around at the time? The only one I think I can remember off the top of my head was a, one called Feed Roll or something like that. It was... Um, it was a similar service, but by default, it only let you choose from about like about hundred different popular feeds to resyndicate. Um, I think you could pay to then put in custom uh, feed of your choice, but I thought, what's the point of that? Why do I want to republish CNN news you know onto the sidebar of my site? Like, 
um, it was a bit of a fad at the time. Some people did actually put um, BBC News or CNN or whatever on the sidebar of their homepage uh, on GeoCities or whatever, and I couldn't see the point. Like, why? Why? That's not going to keep people coming back to your site. They'll just go to CNN. <laughs> right, so I'm going to go to Dave's wanted, site yeah. to read a uh, CNN news. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I wanted my stuff. Um, I wanted my delicious feeds, um, you know, and eventually uh, Twitter. Uh, I used it to republish my um, Twitter stuff onto my blog as well. So I wanted my feeds in there. And so a lot of these other services that were focusing on republish worldwide news, that was useless to me. Uh, and it's, and luckily it turned out useless to a lot of people. But of course now it's directly in WordPress and Joomla and all these other blogs. Like mm. they have, they have little plugins that just do that. So that, that business in itself, if you were thinking of starting that business again, I mean, it would be a no runner at this stage, right? Um, yeah, I mean, it's hard to say. I mean, I think what I would do if I was restarting the, the business now is I would definitely focus on the enterprise end of it only. Uh, and I know a lot of people don't like that term, but it does sum up a, it does sum up the, that section of the market really well. Um, you know, the guys that would pay you know hundreds of dollars a month to have um, higher traffic systems um, or even sort of uh, sort of uh, black box systems. You know, black, you know um, where you can actually just make an appliance and right. they use it for their intranet, things like that. Uh, that is definitely where I would focus it now because, you know, with RSS, I mean, it's not a massive consumer thing anymore. Some people use it, um, but it's not on the tip of everyone's lips out there. Uh, so definitely companies, and that's where the most of the money would be made, um, especially even just in the support of it, even if you open source the whole thing. You know, you've. it seems to me like you've had three... Although not million dollar hits, just just in terms of traffic, you've had three hits if you include Coda.io, uh, the Digest one, and then the other one I've forgotten the name of. Is did you actually create? That, how many did you create to get those three hits? <laughs> um, what what do you mean? What other projects that I've done that haven't perhaps done what, quite so well? Yeah, exactly. Like, what's what's your batting average? Um. I don't know really. I mean, I tend to, I tend to be one of these people that gives up on an idea really, really quickly if it doesn't get any, if I don't see any traction with it. So I can't actually remember many other things that I've done um, that haven't really panned out in the end because I'm either you know ridiculously stubborn and persistent uh, with something. If I think, look, this is going to work, I'm just going to keep doing this and keep hammering it until it sticks. Um, or I'll just give up straight away. You know, I'll release something, think, hang on, this just sucks, and just get rid of it. So um, one of those things, actually, I've, that's just reminded me of one of them, um, was a site called Answers, or was it Questions? I think it's Questions, actually. Um, and it was a site where you could go in, you could type a question, um, and then anyone could come along, type in an answer, um, and I think there were like a little bit of voting and stuff like that on it. Um, and it was just a CGI script, um, but it looked quite slick. It was the, using the whole sort of Web 2 aesthetic uh, that was around in 2005, um, or sort of just sort of coming up then. And, you know, I had a bunch of people using it, but I thought, no, nah, who's going to want to type in questions and answers and, like, <laughs> crap like that? Like, you know, and some people did use it, and it, you know, it, it had a reasonable amount of traffic, but I couldn't see any future in that. So uh, I just kind of let it die off and just crash or whatever. Um, and, of course, uh, that was sort of proven to um, sort of, be a fallacious argument because uh, now that's kind of a big deal on the internet. Um, yeah, because what, what do you have? You had, you mean you got Yahoo Answers, Mechanical Turk. Yeah. Then you have things like Quora and Formspring mm. and, and Mahalo. Oh, Mahalo, yeah. right, right. So I mean, that, that's just another example of why you know an, an idea is important, but it's also so important how and when I guess it's executed, and then the persistence of the execution. Because I guess I mean, it sounds like you did a nice job with your initial execution, but you just didn't keep pushing on it is that probably the yeah. difference 
Yeah, I probably just didn't have the resources all the time, um, you know, to really push it. It just it just seemed like a silly throwaway idea, and I thought, well, this isn't going to catch on because no one else is really getting into this area. Um, I think Yahoo Answers actually launched around two thousand and five as well, so it was around that sort of era. Um, but then, one man, you know, I've, sorry, I was just going to say, it's just it's like one man's rubbish is another man's gold. <laughs> it, that's definitely true. Um, and I mean, what I tend to do, my focus is on sort of producing as much rubbish as possible. Um, with hope that some of it will turn into gold um, and then just sort of shut down the stuff that doesn't very quickly. So it's it's not so much about... Actually, it is like having a batting average, really, but if I think I'm not going to hit the ball, I just won't swing. Well, um, that's, a, that's the famous quote by Linus Pauling, is the way to have a great idea is to have a lot of ideas. And uh, I, 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 maybe, I don't think that's quite the exact quote, but essentially that's it, which is what you're doing, right? The way to have a great uh, product is, or at least product ideas, to maybe launch a lot of simple things to see what gets some traction. But, you know, what's the, other, the, the flip side of that, which is what you just said, is like you, your, your question and answer site was potentially a huge hit, but you gave up on it too early. So if you do launch a bunch of little ones and they don't gain traction or you, you don't give them enough time, then you may miss a lot of opportunities because you just don't commit to anything long enough for them to even really show you or for the, even to be demonstrated that there is something, something there. Yeah, I think so. But I, I look at it a little bit like dating. You know, if you know, you're going out with a, a lady or a guy or whatever um, and you know, they're just not quite right for you or whatever and then you know you split up and then two years later they win the lottery or you know they become famous or whatever some sort of really positive thing happens to them you know i i, def- I wouldn't sort of sit back and think oh i should have stuck with them because they won the lottery or whatever like it was it was really based on the what happened at the time and how you felt about the project at the time that's important and not the um whether that industry ended up doing something big um i think someone who sort of sat there and thought, oh, you know, I, w- I should have uh, stayed dating her just because, you know, she ended up becoming famous. Um, I think that's sort of a shallow way to look at it. So um, I don't adopt that situation with this. I definitely don't think, oh, I could have been, you know, a millionaire in the question um, and answer space, you know. That's a good analogy. Well, you, yeah. you know, I, th- I think uh, in statistics, I, I'm, I, I'm probably going to get this a little wrong, but there's like type A and type B errors. And now I, I can't remember how it works exactly, but it sounds like you could say they're type A and type B errors in startups, which is like if you type A being maybe that you stick with you launch something, you only launch one thing and you stick with it too long. Right. Mm-hmm. You, you keep trying to make something work that really is not going to work. It just the the elements are not right, whether it, what it is that you're doing, the market is not being addressed correctly. The competition is too strong. It's the wrong timing, whatever. Um, or you just don't have the resources to do it correctly. So that being a type A error and a type B error being that you launch a whole bunch of stuff and you never give anything enough energy or effort or commitment to see it work. And what you're saying is that you would rather have a type B error than a type A error because maybe the type B error, you, there might be a few of all the things that you launched that that could have had that that you'll see later on like oh man someone made that work and it was a hit and I, if i just took a little longer but by just the sheer fact that you're launching so many that some of the other ones are probably going to hit so it's in the end it's ultimately a higher probability yeah um i mean i see it as a a breadth thing um you know i, I like to read a lot of biographies and books all about people who are successful in business or you know other fields and they, they seem to fall into a few categories and there's a, there's the people that are just plain lucky they you know just the first thing they fall into is successful and they just sort of coast through life a uh, very rare group um but then you have people who 
you know, um, come across something by breadth, which, you know, is by just trying loads and loads of different things and eventually something sticks and they, they roll with it or even roll with right. many different things over time. Um, but then you get the people who are deep, you know, they pick some area uh, of knowledge or some area of business and then just keep nailing and nailing and nailing and nailing away at it um, until, you know, through sheer persistence, it ends up paying off. Um, and I'm definitely in the breadth uh, category on that one. Hey, so I just looked it up on Wikipedia. I had it just slightly wrong. The statistics are called a type 1 and type 2 errors, and it almost directly applies. Okay, here's what it says. It says, in a statistical hypothesis test, which is essentially what a startup is, right? It's just a hypothesis. So in a statistical hypothesis test, there are two types of incorrect conclusions that can be drawn. The hypothesis can be inappropriately rejected. This is called a type 1 error. Or, can, or one can inappropriately retain the hypothesis, this is called a type 2 error. So type 2 error being obviously that you stay too long with a hypothesis. Mm. Right? Type 1 error being that you don't stay, you reject, you inappropriately reject it. Mm. So, um, yeah, I think that's, that's kind of the same thing. That's actually interesting. Um, now, do you think that that's just, just your intuitive feel about what the best risk-reward risk trade-off is, or it's just more just your personality type? You have lots of ideas, and you have more fun launching things than you do digging deep into something, and it really takes a lot of proof for you to, to commit to something, to say, okay, this is really worth like, – okay, I will, I will suffer um, not being able to play around with all these other ideas I have and just work on this one thing. Because it's showing a lot of uh, potential. Yeah, I think it, I think it is comes down to personality, um, as you suggest, because I think that's one of the things you you learn as you get older, um, or at least hope, I think most people learn it as they get older. I really hope they do. Is that you need to work with your personality rather than try and change it, because that is ridiculously difficult, and a lot of people fail at doing that. So you know, if um, like in my case, for example, I know that I do flip from. Uh, thing to thing flip from interest to interest and i've seen that looking going looking up through my family it's, it's almost like a genetic thing you know um my dad and you know had about 50 different jobs and my granddad had about 50 different jobs and that's just how we we run so i've sort of realized that and i embrace it so now if i'm working on something and you know i just become a bit bored of it um i will analyze the situation i think well hang on am i just procrastinating here uh, or is this sort of one of these situations where I'm not going to have any passion for the first thing again? That's it. I've right. you know, had my fill of that. Um, and it's just about sort of developing this kind of gut instinct as to what situation you're in and making the best of your personality without falling uh, to its sort of whims to procrastinate. But the good thing about having lots of projects, of course, um, and I only tend to have about three or four at a time, uh, is you if you're procrastinating on one, you end up working on another. So that's how I play it. So Structure procrastination. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's like episode three or something like episode that. Episode three, right? yeah, we discussed that. <laughs> Structured procrastination, that's exactly it. And Justin talks about, Justin, you you sort of innately have applied structured procrastination, right? Isn't that yeah. what you're... And if you're if you're if you don't feel like doing you know your first one or two obligations, you jump to the third one as a procrastination and just really lay into it. That sounds very much like Peter's uh, strategy. Yeah. Well, Justin, also you 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 struggle with that too. I mean, I struggle with it myself. Maybe this is maybe we almost all of us uh, founder coder type people struggle with this. Is this desire to work on every cool new problem that you see. I mean, you read something in Hacker News, like, oh, man, that would be cool to work on. Oh, that's cool. And you just, it's so hard to stay focused on anything because everything else seems 
just as cool or, or cooler, right? And and as soon as you start getting frustrated with some technical issue or you become slightly discouraged with the business prospects because there's another competitor launching or because of who knows what, it's just so easy to just get depressed about it and want to jump onto something else. Yeah, I think it's like a, it's a happy medium. I mean, on one stage, you need to see something through to launch. So you, you don't want to jump off things from one thing to another before you even launch it and get tested in the marketplace. But on the other thing, you don't want to flog a dead horse. So it's like a kind of happy medium. Type one, yeah. type two errors. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, okay. Well, Justin, you have a question. I'm sorry. I do. Yeah. Um, looking at Coder, Coder.io, that's Coder.io for anyone who's listening wants to have a look. Um, that's, a, that's a great little site. A couple of things. Firstly, could you just tell us about that? And secondly, then I'd like to talk to you about um, possible enhancements to that and wondering had you thought of them. But just firstly, what, <laughs> tell us a little bit about it from your perspective. Uh, I've always had trouble um, as a developer, and I mean, especially as a, a developer who writes a lot about development. I you know, run Ruby Inside, which is the, the most popular sort of blog about Ruby and uh, things related to it. Um, you know, I've had problems finding um, other content to, to link to and sort of keeping up to date with all these different programmers' blogs and um, official homepages for projects I'm interested in and things like that. Um, I usually end up having to subscribe to either lots of different RSS feeds, which developers, unfortunately, they a lot of the, even the ones who write great posts, they will often not post for several months at a time. and Perhaps their feeds will end up getting cleared out of my list. And um, it's really just hard to keep up with um, some of the, the goings on in the development world and to get a real overview, um, to get a real universal picture rather than just follow uh, a few prominent developers in whatever you're interested in. Um, so I was just having a really big problem with this, and I was thinking, like, you know, other people must be having this issue because um, I keep seeing blog posts come up, like the top twenty uh, Rails-related blogs to follow, or you know, the, the top ten Java developers that are on Twitter and things like this. And so there seems to be this kind of first for um, sort of getting a, trying to get a broader overview of areas that we're interested in as developers. And I thought, well, you know, how can I solve this problem? Um, you know, if only for myself, if not for anyone else. And I realized, you know, it's, it's pretty much like a, a typical search problem, but it's a search problem with um, it needs a, it needs a unique interface on the front. I don't just want to have a like a Google like search and just type in Java or whatever, and um, I get the same sort of results that Google would give me. I want to, you know, I even want to sort of narrow down what areas of Java I'm interested in. Is it releases or libraries or you know whatever, or is it comparisons of Java to Ruby or whatever topics like that. Um, but also I want to sort of see things possibly in date order or, you know, sort of recent relevance, like on a, a Hacker News or Reddit type um, display. I don't want to see all old things. Um, and some sites offer that kind of feature, uh, like Delicious, for example, is excellent. And I, I think Delicious is really underused in this area. Um, so like one area that one thing that I would use is I would go to delicious.com forward slash popular forward slash Ruby. Um, and replace Ruby with anything like C or Java or whatever. And you can sort of see the latest um, things that are getting added to people's delicious lists on there. Uh, and I'd use that as a resource. But things would often come up that were like sort of five years old or, you know, just like spam and stuff like that. And I sort of integrated that into my ideas of like, how can I crawl um, as much developer-related sort of news and links and tutorials and articles, blog posts and so on, uh, and present them in a way that you can then perhaps subscribe to different queries on that information uh, and just have it delivered to you, you know, whether via RSS or the reader or eventually email, um, just so that 
you know, if I'm just any developer with any interest, I can just keep up to date with every sort of area of you know programming technology I'm interested in uh, through one conduit. Yeah, well, you know, it's uh, I love Coder.io, by the way. I think it's you're doing a great job with it. And what's amazing to me is that um, it hasn't been done already because it just seems so obvious. You know, like it's just like why didn't this exist? I mean, it's just this is a, a very it's like a simple. Um, I don't know. It's not a simple solution, but it's a, it's just sort of an elegant uh, solution, I guess. Right? It's not a complicated user interface. It's not hard to describe. You want to keep up with some topics. They're tagged, and Coder IO goes and it basically, I guess, is um, searching through all the most relevant content and, and ordering it by date. Right? I mean, that's, that's yeah. essentially what it does. But think, it works great. I think Twitter was actually quite a big influence on this idea. Um, you you know if. You go on there, you will see the interface is similarish to Twitter in a number of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, but instead of just being, you know, what people have eaten for breakfast or that kind of thing, um, you know, each thing is like a link to somewhere. Uh, so it's like a, just a very sort of high signal to noise ratio Twitter, but with the same kind of querying uh, system and the same idea of following. Um, you don't follow people, you follow oh. topics. Um, so. Which I think is great. I, you know, I, I mean, I'm not a big Twitter user like I'm sure some of our listeners are, are and um, as Justin is. I, 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 I read through the Twitter streams and just get confused. There's all this ads and retweets and people responding. I, I just like, I don't even know what the hell's going on. You know, it's like, I just, <laughs> it's just too confusing. And, and I just, I'm not really, it feel, feels like to me on Twitter, everybody's broadcasting and nobody's listening. <laughs> it's like, and half of my robots. So, Whereas these topics are interesting, right? So if I want to look up JavaScript, you know, that's something I'm interested in. You know, I can just quickly go through and go, okay, let's see what's the latest stuff. And and one thing that's great that you do is you don't just limit it to like you know ten uh, results per page and make me page through a bunch of stuff. <laughs> it's like you have fifty or hundred. Yeah, actually, there's a reason for that. Um, it's because there's no pagination. Uh, because just I was just too lazy to implement it at the time, and it's just not come <laughs> up yet. So I'm just like, oh, okay, let's just show like a hundred different. Um, let's just show the hundred latest results, just so that no one complains that they need page two. Um, well, it's great, still, though. It's yeah. better that way. I prefer it. Please don't put a bunch of pagination. In. I I hate having to do that. It's so annoying. Mm. And um, the fact that it's news as well is is important to this because if it was just um, like a list of generally useful resources without any sign of date constriction on it, um, then it would be you know extremely bad not to have any pagination because you'd want to have the full set but with this it's literally for keeping up to date with stuff um the whole concept of um and this is something that's going to come into it is the concept of you know like official links like links to official home pages links to like the best tutorials um you know as as chosen by people on the site or as saved or favorited by people on the site um there will be an area for that but that's not something that's uh, on there just yet so it's just news so no pagination needed so one question that, that I had, and then we were briefly discussing this uh, on our last discussion show about Coder.io, is that to, to get the real kind of stickiness, um, shouldn't it have some kind of community where people can comment on the stories within Coder.io? That is something that's, I think it's one of those features you, you think, yeah, that'd be kind of easy to put in and, um, you know, it would have some beneficial effects. Um, the problem with that is, is that my experience of, sort of creating small communities um, or even sort of getting involved in others that, you know, people have else, you know, other people have created is that unless you do it right, you run the risk of ending up with every post being not comments, not comments, not comments, not comments. Um, 
unless you're really going to dig in there, you're going to comment on everything yourself and kind of uh, lure people in and perhaps even sort of make some fake users and, uh, you know, really sort of get the ball rolling. And uh, it takes a long time because uh, I've got a site called Ruby Flow, which is a, I guess it's kind of like a cross between like a Reddit and a, a Metafilter type site where anyone in the Ruby community can post a link to a tutorial or a library they've made. Um, and I had to just post and post and post to that for about, I think it was about a month or so. Um, and then other people started posting because they saw that, you know, it was reputable. There was a history to it. Um, and their sort of efforts wouldn't be in vain. And I don't it's think like, Codrio like is at that point. A, people don't want to eat at a restaurant that nobody else is eating at. Right? That's exactly it. And, 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 and I think I remember hearing uh, an interview with one of the Reddit guys. And I, I think they had to spend the first couple months just writing all the comments, right? They had to create all kind of fake users to submit all their stories and they had to write a bunch of fake comments so they had to do that. And I, and I guess it's pretty common and I, I just heard the term for it. I didn't even know there was a term for it. It's called like sock puppeting. Is that right? Yeah, I've heard of that, yeah. yeah sock puppeting? <laughs> yeah. So, which, is seem, which in some ways seems slightly um, unethical but you have to do it in a way, right? I mean, you have to you have, I mean, if you're, if you're, if you, one person is representing themselves as many different users, I mean, that's clearly a little bit of fakery going on. Now, it may, it may not be for any malicious intent. It's just to give people a sense that, hey, there's stuff going on here. But I, I imagine you're right. You, you know, there has, you have to have some really people in there. Otherwise, everybody's just going to stand around and walk. You know, you've just, you, you guys just given me an idea that this is what we're going to need to do for the Swarm Network. Um, is to, I don't know whether you know, Peter, but Swarm's a game that I'm developing. Yeah, I've um, seen that. Okay, and uh, I, one of the things I've been worried about is what, well, what happens if like a whole bunch of people you know, go onto this, but there's no one to play against? But just use Sebastian's AI and just pretend they're people. Right. <laughs> and well, we can well, sock, pocket, sock puppet them. <laughs> well, that's exactly uh, like with uh, David Fogel, the interview we did with the checkers playing uh, about the checkers playing AI, right? I mean, they Blondie gave 24. it. They gave it a Blondie twenty four, right? That was the alias name, and they gave it a personality. It was a twenty four old, twenty four year old female uh, math student at UC San Diego, and they gave a whole persona. And people treated the that persona completely differently because of it. But yeah, I mean, you probably have to do that. Mm. That, that was actually know, one of my projects back in the day. Um, I actually did make a, a, a Perl script that sort of put together English phrases in sort of various different ways and produced blog posts on, like, I'd give it topics. Um, and it, it would kind of just ramble about those topics for about two or three paragraphs in like a, a live <laughs> journal type form. Um, and then it posted them sort of automatically to Blogspot. Um, back, I think it's about 2004, um, and it's still up there. You can, I think it's I am I am learn blogspot.com. I haven't been there for years. Uh-huh. Um, That's very grey hat. Yeah, and it, it did really, it did really well. Like the traffic just went through the roof, but then the, the experiment just ran its um, you know course, and uh, it was you know it was just for fun. It wasn't to promote anything. It was just um, just to screw around. Well, what kind of technology would you use to do that? Oh, now, nowadays, the problem is, if you, the more you learn about AI, and I, I must admit, I haven't listened to your AI shows yet. I just saw them today, and I thought, wow, I'm going to love listening to those. Um, but the problem is, once you learn more about um, how these systems really work in the real world, sort of formally, you start thinking, hang on, just screwing around with a Perl script and sort of bashing sentences together isn't the way to go about it. Um, so I think I would need to do a lot more research on that and the, uh, the way you can generate uh, text programmatically rather than the naive ways I was doing it. Well, there's, there's, the, there's the test. I can't remember the name of the test, but basically once a year um, they run a test to see if a computer can pass the Turing test. And, oh, you mean uh, it's at the, Lub- the, the Lubner Prize, the Turing test they use. Jabber, uh, a program called Jabberwocky run it for quite a while. 
won it for quite a while. And now, and, and that was basically an expert learning system. Mm. And now it's been won by um, basically a neural net-based system. But you're, are you the, talking about the, the Turing test, Justin? Yeah, yeah. There's I can't I can't remember the name of the competition. It's, yes, I think uh, it's the Loebner Prize or the Loebner. I don't know how to pronounce yeah. it. Right. Yeah. So basically, Jason, they have it once a year, and and it's it's that people talk to a computer and they try and see they could try and see whether it's a computer or a person. Like, does it convince them it's a person? No, I think, and I think the original Turing test concept, as Alan Turing outlined, it wasn't whether you could convince it was a person, it's whether you could convince the other person that you were female or not. I think it was something like that. <laughs> oh, really? Okay. I think, yeah. I, it, I'm a little fuzzy out of it. I think that's how I remember My, my experiments on the Yahoo chat rooms would say yes. <laughs> you, you, your Perl script is has uh, has won the Turing. Test. No, he just. Oh, he just I thought you were talking about just us. He, oh. he means he could convince someone he was female rather than a computer convincing someone. Okay, I don't know why you, you want to do that. You the Turing test. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. Well, one thing you you mentioned uh, in our email exchange about Coder.io is that it hasn't actually launched yet. I mean, you haven't officially launched it, but clearly it's launched. No. I've been using it for mo- at least a couple months. So, um, what's what's sort of your launch plan? I mean, it's, it's out there. Oh, what's your what's your plan in terms of uh, do you have like a media uh, you know tactic or strategy like you're going to get a lot of people you're going to notify a bunch of bloggers or you know sites or what's what's your sort of strategy well the things that remain to be done um i mean you might have noticed this as as a user of the system that sometimes the tags it chooses aren't ideal so you might have a post that's actually about um, say image processing in Python and they all say in the post something like oh this is way easier than in Ruby um, and just because they mentioned Ruby suddenly it gets tagged with Ruby um, and if you're a Rubyist and you see that post you don't really want to read that because it's not actually relevant to you um, as a Rubyist just the fact that they're kind of um, having a go at Ruby so I'm sort of working with clustering algorithms to it just adds a bit more weight into the system um, and it just refines what tags are chosen and I think that's quite a big deal just to um, just to get it a little bit more accurate um, you know I'd say it's 95% useful even as it is but I want to sort of just push it up to that 99% point where I don't have to sort of delete um, too many posts or edit in too many things well, so, what, what technology are you using to do that? Well, the current technology that like sort of just tags everything um, is quite naive. It's uh, I've actually packaged most of it up into a, a library called Pismo for Ruby, um, and it does things like uh, processes pages, takes all of the text out, uh, analyzes for keywords. You can have your own um, sort of dictionary of uh, terms that you consider to be different importances, and um, it will figure all that stuff out. Um, and then I have some sort of proprietary stuff which. It just does a lot of waiting, really, of um, phrases uh, that are relevant to developers and stuff like that. Because clearly, a lot of links come through the system that aren't, you know, developer-related at all, like spam, uh, well, for example. Have you thought about incorporating tweet meme stats into into the, into the waiting algorithm of the articles? Because tweet no. with, because with with the tweet meme API, you can mm. basically find out how many times a link's been tweeted. Okay. Which is a which is a really good wait. You know, to find out how popular an article is because it's very current, the tweet meme API. Yeah, I mean, another thing as well is like delicious, you know, if, how many times it's been added on there um, and right. things like that. I, I think the reason I've steered clear of APIs so far is that um, I've not had a, a massive amount of success with them over the years. You know, they can go down for half an hour or something like that. And right. um, I just I just hate it when that, that sort of thing happens. I hate sort of being reliant too much on 
any one service. Uh, and that was part of the reason why sort of getting rid of Feed Digest was a good thing for me because, uh, you know, if the server went down or something crashed or whatever, and, you know, if it was even down for 10 minutes, I would have tons of emails, people saying, oh, my digest don't load, my pages don't load. Um, and I'm kind of the same as the user of the API. Um, if the API doesn't work, I sort of freak out a bit. And, um, yeah, I know you can code around a lot of these problems, but then if you've got to do that, then, you know, you can't really rely on the data 100% anyway. Um, so a, a question I have for you then, well, first of all, it's kind of interesting you say that because, Justin, you've had a lot of struggle with Plugio. And like the Twitter API, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, and just- <laughs> even even now it's it, it's down. I mean, basically, my friend finder function doesn't work because they've cut off uh, my access to the search API. Yeah. Yeah. So that's that's just one example there, right? <laughs> um, so one thing I was going to suggest, if you have a, if you if you haven't already looked at it, is using like a a, a Bayesian classifier. Like sometimes I call it naive Bayesian classifiers for classifying text, um, and uh, it's a it's sort of a an, I guess a methodology or technique of machine learning, and it uses Bayesian probabilities to analyze uh, text and classify them and say, okay, well, this is Ruby or this is Python or this is about NoSQL. Uh, and one of the most famous use cases for it, at least in in, in the sort of the web world, is. Um, uh, Paul Graham wrote an article back in I don't know 2004 something called like a it was a called plan like for spam. a plan for spam and he, he outlines a naive Bayesian classifier and it's funny that he mentioned that I, I think I've talked about this on the show but I had an idea for that back in 2000 um, a, a guy had approached me about using some kind of complicated key exchanging process between emailing between two people to keep so that in order to receive an email, you have to have someone's key or whatever. And I said, you know, that sounds really crazy. Why don't you use a Bayesian classifier? Because I had read, I had been doing some research on Bayesian classifiers um, and, and work I've been doing and um, well, on the whole on the financial market stuff. But also, I remember there's a company called Autonomy, um, which would would help companies classify documents based on various types of categories. And they used these, you know, uh, Bayesian classifiers as their technology. So um, I don't know if you know anything about that stuff or you've looked into it, but that's just the kind of thing that that technology is used, um, used for. Yeah, there's, there's actually some really good libraries uh, in Ruby for doing uh, Bayesian classification, um, which I've sort of come across over the years. And it was one of the things that crossed my mind initially, because it it's sort of like the, the go-to algorithm for doing something like this. Right. Um, the problem was, um, or at least the problem I had, um, was from step one, I wanted to have like, I wanted to have exact control over what sort of happened in the system. And I had all these kind of slightly weird um, metrics I kind of de- you know, derived from looking at content as to what what defines a piece of relevant, interesting programmer content. Um, mm-hmm. And some of the stuff wasn't just really based on the vocabulary. Um, it was based on there's you know, some con- uh, contextual stuff in there as well that I wanted to pin down on. So I thought, well, if I'm going to start putting in my own sort of weighting systems for, you know, words and phrases and, you know, what links there are on the page and how many images there are and all this kind of stuff, um, you know, that I would still be strapping that on to um, the Bayesian stuff. And I think the second part of the problem, and perhaps I'm being uh, a little bit naive about this myself, but it was the training aspect. Um, perhaps I'm wrong, but there is a, you do need to train um, yep. the Bayesian yep. classifier. Sure. And... You that train it as it goes along, though. No, but, no, 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 no. You would, but, you would want to. Otherwise, it would suck, right? It has no background. I mean, you would have to pass in, into it a lot of documents that you would hand classify yourself, right? You would, you would, 
it has either spam or not spam or either this is Python or whatever category you're in, and then it learns based on that. Well, it sounds like um, it, it, the, the model that, that Coder.io is using sounds a lot like a piece of software called Spam Assassin. And what Spam Assassin essentially is, is like 80% of it is a rules-based system where you put in different rules about what, what you think spam is. And that's been growing as the years have gone by. Users have put in these different rules. And each of those rules add towards a weight. But then 20% of it, I'm not sure if it's 80-20, but it's something like that. 20% of it, you can have a Bayesian um, analysis system as well. And then that basically says, look, if it's spam or if it isn't spam, then that adds to the weight. So you could potentially do something like that uh, with, your, with your system. So just bring in the Bayesian stuff, start training it, and have its weight to be a lot lower at the beginning because it, it's not very well trained. But as it becomes well trained, then you can maybe start to make it more important. Yeah, I, th- I think you've hit the, the nail on the head with that, Justin. Um, like the spam assessing, because I totally forgotten about spam assessing from my sort of uh, short days as a sysadmin um, with that whole scoring thing. And that is exactly how it works. Um, you know, it does actually build up a score and I can sort of see what that score is and why uh, all of the different sort of reasons that score was given. Um, on any particular thing, so I can easily tailor it and uh, sort of twist it to my own needs. Um, yeah. And yeah, that's, that, that is kind of where we're at. And the good thing is, is that it's worked good enough so far. Um, but as long as I make sure I keep cleaning up and any sort of things that are extremely erroneous in the in the tagging, um, as long as I get rid of them or fix them, I can then use the existing body of um, content. Uh, to train um, yeah, exactly. such a Bayesian filter. So I've already got the data set built up over time um, anyway. So that's uh, you know another angle to it that could come into play. And it's just then this, the Bayesian is just one more of your little rules. Well, you know, they, the way it works a lot of times in, in machine learning is you'll have various types of models all will vote. Like you might train several different neural nets with different architectures or you might use a neural net, a decision learning tree and a Bayesian classifier or whatever, or or you could have like an expert system. So maybe your expert system is one model, this or the series of rules that you've created. That's one model, and maybe you assign it a 0.9 weighting or 0.8 weighting. And the Bayesian filter has something, and then over time, you know, you can change those weightings that these two models have, or you could have different models. You know, it's just that's, a, yeah. That's that's how the description, like the the little descriptions that are on Codeoreo that come up um, for each link. That is how, in fact, the titles as well, the title and the description are chosen in um in that kind of way. And I didn't learn about it from machine learning. I I sort of picked it up from a reading some articles about how systems in uh, planes work for reliability and mm-hmm. uh, like for systems like the um, you know how high you are that kind of stuff and they have like three different systems and they all report to the computer and two of them have to come up with the same result and then it goes with that um, so that you know if one gets an erroneous reading or whatever it can um, you know it just takes the best of the, the three um, so that's kind of what it does with the um, you know there's a few different scoring algorithms for the titles and the bodies uh, and it's done quite well picking those up not perfect but um you know, it's uh, definitely a lot better than a lot of the sort of the scraper blogs or other automated systems um, that are, you know a bit more naive of that done. Yeah, well, it, it doesn't seem like there's any spam on there or any low quality stuff. Every time, everything that I'm looking at right now looks high quality. Yeah, do you think you could do the same thing with images? With get, getting images from those sources. That's something I wanted to do actually because. Um, you know, if you if you look at some of these new um, tools, like uh, I think it's Flipboard on the iPad. Yeah, it's exactly yeah. what I'm thinking about. Flipboard, yeah, yeah, things like that. They often put images in, and um, you know, it'd be nice to pick out the, the sort of the primary image from a piece of content 
to to include in there. But then I was thinking, yeah, would I actually find this useful myself? And I didn't think it would be t- particularly useful for the developer stuff because, you know, I know some articles had like a, gra- a graph or, um, you know, a logo of a project or something in. But it just seemed like extra noise to me for, you know, it would work, but perhaps it wouldn't, it wouldn't um, pay off in the, the amount of effort I'd put into making sure the images were correct. And having looked at other systems that scrape like developer blogs and try and pick things out like images, I've not seen anything that's particularly compelling um, that makes you think, yeah, this would really add a ton of value. Uh, and even if you look at um, dzone.com, which I mentioned before is like a dig for developers, um, and it actually sort of is kind of related to Coder.io, but is all human powered, um, but a very similar sort of process, I guess, without the, um, you know, it's not as automatic. Um, but they, for their images, they just show you a screenshot of the site that's being linked to. And I look through that and I think, yeah, it's a nice kind of gimmick. And it, you know, in its early days, you kind of would look at it and go, wow, that's kind of cool. But the more I look at it and the more I go there, I think this is not any use whatsoever. It's just having a picture for a picture's sake, just to kind of like drag your eye through. Um, but the actual content of the image is, you know, it's so tiny and so thumbnailed that it's not much use to me at all. I find that to be true. I, I know that, for instance, a lot of blog posts that I'll, I'll read, you know, they have pictures all throughout there. They're just kind of random pictures to illustrate a point, like a picture of somebody who's mad because they're talking about being mad or mm. something. And then, and then when I got to print this stuff out, I just got to use print friendly to go through and just hide them all because I don't care about the stupid pictures. Unless it's an important yeah. graph, for the most part, it's just a waste. You know, it's like, yeah. just give me the straight up content, you know? And, and, you, and, and something that, you know, I would point to is like, some of the most interesting content that I read, they don't have any pictures. I mean, Paul Graham doesn't have any pictures in his articles, <laughs> and he doesn't need them because it's great essays. He doesn't need a bunch of silly yeah, pictures. Yeah, but once, you've, once you've, you've used Flipboard, which has been obviously designed by some very good designers, you can see the possibilities of uh, automated pictures. And it's, it is really, really impressive. I mean, the, have you used Flipboard, Peter? Yeah, I, um, I think I actually got into it on the first day. I was quite lucky. I managed to sort of get my code in quite quick after Scoble mentioned it. So uh, I it's tried pretty it out. impressive. It's pretty impressive the way that it works and in the way that it lays the pages out. Um, but obviously, that's that's an iPad specific app. So for that environment, it really works. But mm. I can understand how a system like Coder IO. I can understand how it's not it's not needed, so I, I can see your point. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, one thing I could do, of course, is you know I could just um, collect together thousands of pictures of Natalie Portman, and just sort of randomly <laughs> throw them in to sort of lure people's eyes through the page. But, I like um, that. Uh, yeah, that's right. That's that's something that. like that. But, so, but no, I mean, the, one of the things about Coderio is that it actually does have images on it, um, but the images are sort of like in a Twitter style fashion, where the image isn't related to the content. Um, it's the um, the source of the content. So, like, if you take the sort of the, read white web, it reminds me of slash dot uh, the way that they do their images. Mm. Yeah, that yeah. Works. So it's it's source based, um, and I think I think that provides just enough, um, you know, for now at least, just enough visual um, element um, to make it easier to scan through than yes, if it was just absolutely plain text. Uh, although plain text has worked for some sites like delicious, for example, they, they will show an image. Um, if you, the link is actually to an image, uh, directly, or I think a movie. Um, but other than that, it's just plain text links and that seems to work, uh, and on Reddit as well and, uh, hacker news. So I think developers in particular have a, you know, that I think that they don't mind just seeing text. Um, but we yeah. do have a little bit of graphic flair just, you know, just in case. 
I, I think that's I think that's right. You know, you don't need a whole bunch of bling, and sometimes that can be just distracting. Um, so here's I have a question for you. Um, one thing that I've been thinking about lately is the whole voting and the sort of fanboyism that I think I think is playing into Hacker News as it did probably on Dig and Reddit. So like for instance, there are definitely like people on Hacker News that if they submit something, it's going to the front page no matter what, right? Derek hmm. Sivers, Paul Graham, Zed Shaw, they write something. I went to have breakfast this morning. It's on the front page, right? It, it, I mean, you know, obviously they all, they're all known to write usually fairly interesting things. And there's obviously a whole other dozen or two dozen people. If they write something, it's going to the top, which you could say goes to building credibility. If you build credibility, people want to know what you have to say. But I sort of feel like by showing, you know, the, the, the uh, source and by showing the number of uh, votes, people are voting because other people voted and people are voting because it's just somebody that they like and respect. The content may not necessarily be worthy of it. And I wonder, and, and, and you know, what you think about that, because you don't have voting on Coder.io. And I wonder if that's maybe better because you, you, you eliminate that kind of effect, that sort of fanboyism or groupthink, and it's just like raw, you know, updated content based on a category. Yes. Um, I mean, the, the important thing about some of those people that you mentioned is that they don't necessarily submit their own stuff to um, Hacker no, News. So and I don't mean to disparage them, right? Like, I, and, you know, I would say that I read most of their stuff because it is good, <laughs> right? I mean, I don't, it's not like it's their fault or they're doing anything. It's just, it's just the nature of how groups of people behave. I don't actually think you're right on this one, Jason, because I think Derek Sivers would, uh, does a lot more blog posts than end up on the front page of Hacker News. You think so? Yeah, I think so, yeah. I would be interested to do analysis of, like, what percentage of his posts make the front page or, or not. Or Joel Spolsky or Paul Graham or Zed Shaw or even people like Jason Cohen. You know, it'd be interesting to know, like, what percentage, what's their, bat, what's their batting average. Do you think that it should be a hidden vote? So have a voting system, but it's hidden. I wonder. I wonder if what you did is, yeah, you, I, I, I bet you to get a, you might get better content if you did not show... Um, votes or source. You just had the title because I have a feeling people vote, and I, I notice it myself. Even when I'm sort of trying to be aware of it, because you know, even humans, when we're aware of our cognitive biases, they still affect us. Like you know, the concept of anchoring. So if I say, you know, if you say, well, let's say, let's say I have something you want to you, you want to buy, and I say, well, Justin, it's a thousand dollars, right? And you're like thinking, Jesus, that's way too expensive. I would have paid three hundred. And I said, but I'll give it to you. I'll give it to you for like seven hundred. You're like, wow, 30% off, that's good. You even know what anchoring is, and it's still going to affect you. I mean, there, there are studies that show that, that people who are aware of anchoring still fall prey to it as much as anyone else does. So, and, But are you, are you saying that there should be votes, but you just shouldn't show it? Or are you saying I, there just I shouldn't be I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm sort of thinking, uh, this is something I've thought uh, somewhat about, because I think there's a cognitive bias that people vote on things that other people have voted on and more than uh, the opposite. And I think things that once they get a little momentum, they're going. And then, of course, once they get momentum, they get the front page, and that's the, the Italian restaurant effect, right? Which is, the, if, is that if you have two new Italian restaurants, one on each side of the street, the first person who walks by could be random. They just happen to be on the side. They happen to go on the one that's on their side of the street. You know, right? No one's in either one. I'll just go in this one. The next person comes along and they say, oh, well, no one's in the other Italian restaurant, but someone's in this one. I guess I'll go there, right? And then you just, because of random initial conditions, one takes off and the other doesn't. And I think that happens on Hacker News all the time. I go now to the new page and I see all this great stuff. I'm like, why is it not this going to the front page? And I see some silly stuff on the front page. And I'm like, I can't believe that some of the stuff made that. And I think 
there's a, I mean, obviously, what I think is cool is not necessarily represented what everyone else thinks is cool and interesting, but I do think there's a certain amount of that groupthink effect, and I wonder if that's more detrimental than not by showing yeah, stuff. I think Yeah, I think it is detrimental, and I think it does go on on Hacker News, um, but I, it's something I just don't understand because I just don't do it myself. I mean, I tend to vote up things that have got sort of two, three, four points a lot more often than, you know, because what's the point of adding on a vote to something that's got 200 points? I don't bother. <laughs> You're like, um, yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't vote for the exact, you know, in real life for exactly the same reason because my vote has no effect on anything. I'm just, just, you know, looking at it from a rational point of view. Um, it's actually called the voter's paradox and they've studied, like, why do people even bother to vote when their vote means nothing? Right. Um, and there's like this whole altruism kind of aspect to it that people want to be- belong to a society or whatever. Um, right. So that could tie into uh, Hacker News as well. They sort of want to feel part of that group of people that are, are voting for things. Um but on Coder.io, I mean, it's not really a focus, the, the voting. and um, But the, the voting is actually in the system. It's entirely in. It's entirely functional. Um, there's just not the the sort of the UI widgets to actually perform it at this time. Um, but the funny thing is it is actually used already. Um, so like, if I had a new source of Coder.io um, and it does its first uh, crawl of a source or a feed, um, often a lot of things in that feed will be relevant straight away to post onto Coder.io, but I don't want it flooding um, you know the system. So what anything that comes along in the first crawl immediately gets like a hundred downvotes, um, so that it appears like several pages down. Uh, so it's already in there and working, but I just haven't put the widgets on because I just don't think at this point it, it's the same problem with the comments. You know, I don't want to sort of have lots of things sitting there with zero points, um, or even if you know I could hide them, like um, you know, Reddit you, does that, right? Doesn't well, Reddit do that? They'll maybe you could up. try an experiment of just of just having the voting buttons, but don't display mm-hmm. what the votes are. Mm. But the, although the thing is, it doesn't really affect what you're seeing too much, um, because I mean, it is news and it is something that would tend to be in the order of when it came in. Um, I mean, the votes do have a slight influence, um, and it actually uses the same algorithm as Reddit for the uh, you know amount of votes to the positioning and things like that. Um, but I don't think there's enough users on Codrio to make that work at this point. Um, you need to have lots of people reading each different sort of area of content. Uh, and at the moment, it's probably mostly people just reading Ruby stuff. So um, I want to reach a critical mass before I put the things in, like commenting and sort of having the voting work entirely properly. Uh, but, I mean, more important than that, um, one of the other things I need to get in before it launches is saving items, um, which, you know, it's a bit like starring items on Google yeah. Reader. Um, because I think some of the things that come along in Coderive, you want to um, perhaps not just read later, but you might want to sort of keep coming back to as a resource, like a tutorial for Redis or something like that. Um, you know, you want to keep coming back to that to learn it, um, you know, until you've sort of nailed the topic. Uh, and then you can unstar it again or, un, you know, remove it from the system. Um, I think that's going to be really important to be able to save items that are in the, the database. Sort of like you'd um, add favorites in Twitter, um, you know, and come back to those. Yeah, I think that's a good idea. That's That would be probably my first request as a user is being able to save. Uh, let me ask you a question about the design. Uh, did you design this yourself or did you hire a designer? Because I think it's uh, it's looks really nice. I think it's, 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 a, it's an attractive site for pre-launch. Yeah, it's, it's just entirely myself. Um, I mean, the way I design is a little bit weird, to be honest. I just start off with something really basic and then pile up and pile up the features. So, like, you wouldn't have even wanted to see it, like, after a few weeks. It's just full of box shadows and, you know, curved corners and stuff like that. But then I, 
once I've got it to a point where I kind of think, okay, these are all the different things I want in the design, um, I then sort of take that whole, uh, you know, sort of 37 signals minimalism approach of just cutting away whatever I can. Uh, so turn off the, the, the type kit fonts, turn off the rounded corners. Like, does it really make a difference if the corner's rounded or square? Um, and then just take all the, the, all the, the trash off the top. Um, and then you're left with something that's clean, but the structure and the form of the page is really nice. Um, so it's 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 not entirely a deliberate process, but the, doing that, sort of sculpting a page in that way, just keep adding these bits of clay on and then sculpting it down to the bare essentials, um, just seems to work for me. It just seems to come out quite nice. You know, well, it seems to be. Wor- I I think it looks good. I think you're. Yeah, you know, I think you're on the right track. And well, I don't know how much we got into this yet. I but the whole the marketing, the launch strategy, right? I mean, how are you gonna? Do you have a plan to get this to bigger numbers? Yeah. Um, I actually had a landing page on Code.io from about January, and I think I got about eighteen hundred people on a mailing list for sort of to know when it launches. Who I haven't even emailed them yet, which is probably not good since. It's been- <laughs> In They're looking for at me like, like hey, months. thanks for the email there, yeah. Peter. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm kind of, I'm kind of just scared to email them because, like, it's just a sudden influx. I want to make sure the technology's right before like thousands of people turn up. Um, you know, there's already 600 users just from people that have seen it. You know, me mention it on Twitter. So, um, you know, just people that are coming to it routinely. So the traffic is just going to explode when I email those people. But I have been sort of building up contacts and. You know, I've got people who are interested and, um, you know, like you guys as well. You know, you've got me um, on for this interview and, um, you know, I'm just I'm speaking to other people that uh, I can't really mention names just because otherwise I might sort of jinx it. Uh, but, you know, I've got some good good leads. Um, I mean, are these, are, these are people who have like are these for people who have like big popular blogs or something like that? So if they mention it or recommend it, then that'll drive traffic. Is that what you mean? The leads? Yeah, yeah, I've got a few, you know, a few things like that, and um, I'm also hoping I might be able to do a sort of a, a, a promo tour of sorts, um, come over to the US. Just uh, I've had, I've sort of actually been mentioning this briefly on a, a few different interviews and on my website, uh, and had quite a few sort of invitations from different startups around the Bay and LA and uh, San Diego uh, to sort of sort of come and visit, and I just sort of want to perhaps you know tie in with a bit of market research as well. I'm not just going to say I'll oh, check out Coder.io, but um, to actually sort of perhaps offer my insights into the stuff they're doing and just sort of chat and see, you know, what sort of information they rely on and uh, stuff like that. So, you know, if there's anyone listening to um, this that, you know, thinks it'd be great for me to sort of drop in for a bit and sort of check out what they're doing and stuff like that, then, uh, you know, I'm uh, all ears. I think that's a great idea. That's a really cool idea, actually. Have you got a a business model for Coder.io? Because I'm, I'm pretty sure the Hacker News doesn't make any money. Well, hold on, hold on one sec before you get that, Justin. So, by the way, if you come to L.A., you got to hang out with Justin and I. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So we're we're both in sort of the Pasadena, L.A., or we're ten minutes from L.A. Finally, so. I can have a pint with an Englishman. Right. <laughs> Jason doesn't drink, so I don't get any any joy there. Oh dear. <laughs> yeah. So you'll you have to. I mean, I, I'm sure your focus will probably be up north in Silicon Valley area. But if you come down to L.A., there's probably enough going on down here. It might be worth at least a day or two. Yeah, yeah I've, you could, I've got quite a lot of history in LA, so uh, I'll definitely be there. I, I just know a lot of people there, so uh, right. yeah, one of my favorite haunts. Cool. Okay, so Justin, you're asking about the business model? Yeah, just because, I mean, uh, Hacker News basically doesn't have a business model. I mean, it doesn't make any money. Um, what, what do you think about Coder.io? What's your thoughts for that? Well, what Coder.io is now isn't what it initially was meant to be. Um, the thing that it was initially meant to be is the business model. 
Uh, and that is, it was going to be, and these, these seem to be coming so popular lately. I might have missed the boat again on this, but um, the whole kind of uh, professional screencasting and uh, ebook kind of market, because I mean, you know, people can probably tell from some of the things I've done, I sort of have a, a publishing and writing background. Uh, and, you know, that's sort of where my real sort of focus is. Um, rather than development as such. I can't, I can't see that in Coder.io in any well, way whatsoever. No, so no, how, no, that's, so that's how did that happen? How did it migrate? Yeah, I mean, the original vision is just that Coder.io and you know, sort of this whole I.O. process, you know, input-output for developers, um, was literally, it was just going to be about selling screencasts about, you know, different topics um, and ebooks and whatever I sort of decided to produce or get other people to produce. But then I thought, well, how am I going to promote this stuff? Um, because I've only got, a, you know, I've got blogs and stuff in the Ruby sphere, but that doesn't really spread out much further than Ruby and JavaScript and sort of ancillary technologies to those. So I thought, how can I promote this stuff? And I thought, you know, I had this other idea that, you know, what it eventually became about the whole sort of keeping up with news uh, thing. And then I thought, well, hang on. If this kind of entirely free service became popular and I've got, you know, thousands of uh, different developers sort of subscribed to feeds or email alerts or whatever about Java news or Python news or whatever, I've kind of killed two birds with one stone because one, I can see all the stats and I know how many developers I've got following different topics, um, you know, in different areas. Um, but secondly, I've got them kind of captive. So they're, you know, they're either reading the news on uh, sort of through the Coder.io site, or they're receiving an email or subscribe to an RSS feed, and I can be the only one that can push out information into that stream um, that says, "Well, hey, look here, you know, you're subscribed to say Java and Python tags. Here's an ebook about you know uh, migrating to Python from Java. Like, let's say I produce that, um, and just being like the only supplier in that kind of marketplace um, would be absolutely awesome in terms of sales. So it's my market research and a sales channel all in one. Um, but then I thought a little bit further than that um, because there's a lot of other people now producing eBooks and screencasts. It's become quite a big thing in the last year because it's so easy to um, sort of rig up the systems. Um, I can actually sort of do these in an affiliate way so if i you know find an ebook about python or whatever that's really really good uh that costs i don't know someone's selling it on their site for 30 dollars or whatever and they're willing to sort of give me 10 dollars a sale or something um and i think it's high quality enough to sort of get away with promoting i can put that in um as an item as a, as a sponsored item as it were and make the affiliate income on that so it's ideas like that that relate to sort of having a lot of developers you know, subscribe to things and checking out the site all the time or, you know, or receiving it in their e e uh, inbox or whatever, um, I can then, you know, let them know about things that are commercial that then make me some money. So I think the thing is, is now that you've said that publicly, um, you need to have a page on your site somewhere explaining that anything that you push through is vetted very strongly and is very, very high quality and there, there'll be nothing that isn't anything less than 100% relevant for that, for that feed. Yeah, I want to. I want to keep it really sort of um, subtle. I mean, especially to begin with, it's you know the focus is definitely on just keeping high traffic, you know, high um, quality stuff coming through. And I think it takes that high quality stuff um, and a history of high quality stuff to actually get people to subscribe in the first place. Um, you know, that's just what I found with blogs and stuff. Like, you can't just start blogging and have like a thousand subscribers the first week, no matter how good the content is, um, because people will often look at the archive and want to know that you know you've been around a while. It's not a waste of time. 
So I think I kind of need to prove that just implicitly without even sort of explicitly saying it to start with. But then, um, yeah, I probably will blog about it so that, um, you know, most of the, the people who are sort of subscribed will learn about it one way or another. Do you think that blogs are, are, are say, RSS readers or, or subscribers like that are be- – I'm, I'm wondering if that's becoming irrelevant because of things like Hacker News because I don't – I used to – go through my RSS reader all the time. But now I almost never do, not for any other reason than I just have Hacker News, which sort of aggregates the stuff anyway, or then maybe I go to Kodoraya as well, and I don't go looking through the blogs. I mean, what do you think about that? I think um, I think it's I think it's quite easy in that area to sort of just see like what you do and sort of assume that everyone else has sort of taken the same route. Mm-hmm. Um, I know I know because I do that as well. Uh, but I know from people I talk to that it's it's a real mix. Um, I mean, there are some people that still just type in techcrunch.com and they'll just, you know, they'll just go there. They won't subscribe to it. They just want to keep typing it and going in uh, every day like that. Um, But there are still plenty of people that subscribe to feeds because they are um, sort of discerning a source. You know, they they want to read TechCrunch. They want to read Read Right Web. They they have these sources that they want to read. Um, whereas people who perhaps haven't got as much time or they're not so discriminating of the source will use things like Hacker News and Reddit a lot more um, because they would rather see what you know they think the experts or the, the, the group thinks is important within a certain area. Um, but, you know, I think there are enough people that are discriminate by source um, to sort of, you know, keep things like feed reading and, uh, you know, customized Twitter feeds sort of going. It's not going to be a problem, I don't think. Right. Hey, Jason... Um I think we're coming to the end of the show because we've uh, we're, we're coming up to an, the hour and a half mark. Okay. So uh, last get our last qu- last call. Yeah, last call. <laughs> okay. Last questions. Okay. Uh, last orders. All right. All right. Uh, sh- let me just figure what I want to ask here. Um, so yeah, one thing I noticed is that you have over ten thousand points on Hacker News. That's incredible. Mm. I mean, how do you? How did you accumulate so many points? Because I know from personal experience. I mean, I've submitted a number of things that I thought were really good, and they got nothing. And there's a few of them that got a little bit of love, but it's it is just hard to get anything um, to the front page. I mean, do you just you submit like five things a day? I mean, how do you get ten thousand points? No, I don't. I don't submit very much um, at all. Sort of once or twice a week at most, I think. Um, it's one of these instances of what gets measured gets done. Uh, I think it was I think about eighteen months ago. I was sort of um, you know sort of looking at the score, and I was thinking you know like the leaderboard, and I thought these people are like up there with ten thousand, twenty thousand points. It's absolutely crazy. How like you know how does anyone even get to that? Just you know like like you're asking me. Right. Um, and I thought you know it'd be kind of cool to get on the leaderboard, just like you know uh, top hundred. So I didn't really do anything as such. Just the fact that I was um, you know. I was aware of it, sort of like if you're trying to lose weight, if you just weigh yourself every week, um, even if you don't make any changes that you know of, um, a lot of people do tend to lose weight just because they're more conscious of it. Um, And I guess perhaps I started to comment more, started to say things that were perhaps a little bit more insightful, um, you know, and submit things that I thought would be good. And it's just bubble up. Like if you just keep doing it every day, um, you know, if you get 10 points every day from comments that you've written, um, and that's not too difficult. Uh, you know, within a year, that's three thousand six, you know, three six fifty points. Right. Um, and so it doesn't take much more beyond that. And then, as you say, you know, some people, um, it's not just the source or the, the people who blog uh, make the posts that are linked. Sometimes people will pay more attention to links that are added to the site by people who are known on the site. So if PG, you know, Paul Graham. Um, 
post something uh, and it's on the new page, it's pretty much guaranteed to get voted up, um, get right. on the front page. Um, but, I mean, specific advice for you, if you do want to get something on the front page of Hacker News, um, you really need to focus on the timing. Uh, timing is so important because of the way the algorithm works on there. Uh, like if you post something and then it gets loads of link, uh, loads of votes up about sort of you know six seven hours after you posted it. Um, so, so let's say you put it on sort of at one a.m. or something like that, um, Californian time. It's not going to do well, even if it gets tons of votes after seven or eight hours. It's very important on Hacker News to get sort of two, three, four um, votes within the first sort of half hour an hour. Um, get on the front page as soon as possible, which is what that will do. Um, even with, because you look at the front page, there, there are you will occasionally see things on there that only have three or four points. Sure, and yeah. those are the things that eventually bubble up. So timing is key. So, what's the best time to submit to Hacker News then? That I don't know, and I'm I'm hoping someone will put together some sort of uh, study on this. But uh, I find it tends to be sort of early evening um, Pacific time. I think a lot of people come on after work. Uh, and check this stuff out and into the evening. So um, that's just my experience with that that side of the world. And it does seem to be mostly in the Pacific time zone that uh, you know the users are. Yeah, it's like you want to get on there when people are reading it, but you don't want to be what's so busy that it just gets knocked off the new page before anyone looks at it. You know, it's like there's mm. this sort of sweet spot that it has to be up there where there's not it's not with the stream is not going through so fast that it doesn't have a chance. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't know. It's it'd be interesting. Mm. Evening I, I, is good. I, 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 had, I had an idea for a, um, a Bayesian classifier that uh, you would go and you would enter on all of the Hacker News titles um, for the past <laughs> year or two and have a, like a Hacker News point predictor. Uh, or you could have a Markov generator and actually generate entirely new titles. Generate titles, a Markov generator, or a Bayesian classifier. All right, so there's, my, new, there's my next project. That's cool. Or, yeah, Hacker News, um, uh, yeah, just... just Say so, okay, well, you could type in a title and be like, ah, eh, probably three points, or that's a fifty point one. You know, I mean, it might end up just saying, well, anything with cloture in it or anything that says Paul Graham in it, it will go really high. You know, I mean, there's certain things that are just hot for a while, right? I mean, if you if you talked about um, a NoSQL database six months ago, it was guaranteed to go up top, or if you were if you talked about cloture for a while, that was that was up there no matter what. That's going to be on my next post. It's going to be like Derek Sivers discovers how religion with MongoDB. Um, <laughs> <laughs> revolution my start revolutionize my startups revenue stream or something right right guaranteed number one <laughs> so another thing i would ask you about was uh your video blog i noticed that you've done about five episodes of a video blog so it, it always kind of reminds me of uh like um uh, what's it the, re the real world where they have like the confession video right, <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. and you like confess to your to the uh, tech audience i don't know i'm not exactly sure what you're confessing about because i only watched uh, one of them but so what's what's the plan with that what's the what's the motivation it's just a case of pushing boundaries uh you know i started blogging really early um this is kind of the same sort of thing it's uh, video seems to be an area right at the moment where you know if you put videos up it kind of gets attention it's something that a lot not a lot of developers do um especially putting themselves in the video it's really rare to see that um in the developer area even sort of prominent screencasters like uh, ryan bates uh, with his railscasts.com you know you often don't see people in the videos um and so i guess it's just it's just another way of just pushing a boundary getting people to sort of uh, get to know who i am a little bit um, and I found that over the years through Twitter, through blogging, you know, if people know who you are before you've even met them or before perhaps you've even spoken to them, um, they're more likely to sort of feel sympathetic or 
uh, you know, more likely to want to work with you, more likely to post about you on their blog. And I think well, that's you're, really you're a real person then, right? I mean, like, <clears> you get less chance to get flamed. I mean, that's why I guess it's important for people to have pictures on their blogs or Twitter stream or, or whatever. I mean, that's that, which is funny because I don't even have a picture on my profile for our podcast website <laughs> so nobody yeah. knows what i look like but i guess if you have a picture of yourself people kind of feel like you're a real person and they feel more connected to you and i think a yeah. video takes it to the next level so you're right and i'm sure your your listeners have exactly the same effect with you you know if they met you in real life they'd feel comfortable with having a conversation with you in a way that if they met you know sort of someone who just writes articles uh, like say paul graham for example perhaps you wouldn't feel so you know he he would seem a bit different to you whereas you guys heard your voice um, and it kind of got to know you by listening to the podcasts and that sort of, you know. We found a strange phenomenon where our friends have actually stopped calling us because <laughs> we'll, we'll be like, well, why haven't you called us? And then we'll, hey, we just, we just spoke to you the other day. We've been listening <laughs> to the show and it's like we've been talking to you for the last two weeks. Although I have listened to three of our shows back to back, they get this total burnout, on, totally burnout on us. That's right. <laughs> yeah, so they need to launch their podcast now and it can, <laughs> uh, the circle can be completed. Right, it's like, why well, listen to yours? You've got to listen to mine. Yeah. Right. Well, that's. Uh, I think that's. Uh, I think that's really funny. I think what you should do though is your background to do like a backdrop. You know how like in the TV shows they have like a picture of like a city, li- a cityscape, Tar- <laughs> you know? the Leading Tower of Pisa. Right, have like a really funny backdrop, like like yeah. Uh, one day uh, we'll all just be TV channels talking to each other. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, that's kind of like uh, Twitter. You know, I feel like everyone's just broadcasting and nobody's listening, but maybe that's, that's the world. Yeah. So w- w- one uh, one last question I have for you. I know we're we're getting late on time here though. Is um your book beginning ruby um which has published through a press so that's pretty impressive that you know you got a book published as well as selling some companies i mean you've, you've done a lot um which is it's uh, i don't know like i said i find i find that impressive so what's the story behind behind uh, you know writing a book and getting it published I mean, that's no easy feat right yeah it relates to what we were saying actually just being exposed uh, you know having some exposure i had a personal blog um that i've been running for several years i posted about ruby quite often on it um, and uh, sort of an acquisitions editor at A-Press approached me in 2006, I think it was, um, sort of, you know, said, oh, you seem to be writing about Ruby a lot. You seem to sort of know how to write, so come and write a book for us. Um, and it was that simple because just back then those kind of opportunities were a lot easier to get than they are now um, when everyone seems to sort of want to write a book and things like that. Um, so that's how I got it. It's just just dead simple. People approaching me again. That seems to be the, the pattern with everything I do. People approach me uh, rather than me sort of going out and saying, I want to do X. They sort of come to me and say, will you do X? And I do. <laughs> and it's because you're out there. It's because you're out there and you've got a presence. Well, Justin, it's, surface it's, area. It's, it's back it's, to surface area. It's his luck. He's increased his luck surface area, which is what we talked about in the last show. You, have to, you increase your luck surface area by A, doing something interesting, and B, telling the world that you're doing it. And then the more, the more you do that, the more the world, you know, the people in the world might, may have come across what you're doing and may have a reason to contact you. That's exactly it. Just, you know, just ex- expose yourself, obviously, in a legal way. Um, <laughs> you know, and, and good things do eventually sort of attract to you, and, you know, not in any sort of mystical sense, but in the fact that, yeah, as you say, it's uh, sort of a, a surface area of your exposure and your luck. Right. You need to write that blog post, Jason. Yeah, I got about, five, <laughs> I got about 15 blog posts. Two of them I just... Um, I, can't, I just thought of all well, during the show here. One of them is going to be about the cognitive biases of Hacker News. I thought that might be interesting. And one might be startup errors, type one and type two, based on statistical errors. I think we can get them on the front page. Yeah, I, I got a bunch of them. I just got to sit down and write them. Uh, unfortunately, I'm a lot better at just sitting on and talking than I am at writing. <laughs> <laughs> 
I can talk all day, but to get my get me to sit down and write, you know, more than two paragraphs is this. Oh, perhaps you need your own private podcast that um, is just like the the outtakes of everything that you want to say. <laughs> Right. Well, that's what my, I, I, when I told, uh, I told my wife, you know, Sandy, I said, you know, about getting the block, she's like, oh, God. She's like, you're just never going to anything out because you're such a perfectionist. She's like, just tell it to me and I'll write it for you. Just sit down and, 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 and I'll write it. That's a good idea. <laughs> so I might have Sandy be my ghost writer. I'll just kind of yak at her for like 10 <laughs> minutes. Like, you got enough? And she's like, yeah, okay, I'll write it. <laughs> that's what I'll do. But, uh, well, Justin, or, do you have anything else or are we, should we wrap this thing up? No, I think wrap it up. It's been a, a great show, great, great interview. Uh, Peter's been a great guest. Yeah, it's been yeah. great speaking to you guys. Yeah, like I said, like I said uh, uh, earlier, Peter, it's, it was real. Um, we're really appreciative that you came on with such little notice. Uh, we owe you one, so uh, come out to LA and uh, we'll take you out to dinner or something. And uh, you know that would, uh, yeah. And I also, I'd like to have you on again, maybe as, at some point after uh, Coder IO is launched, and we can kind of see how that goes, get a little, um, you know, review of your experience. Yeah, I'll tell you all about my uh, Raymond Noodles diet at that point. Yeah, right. That'd be great. <laughs> all right. Well, thanks again, and uh, we'll uh, so we'll we'll be in touch. So, all right. That's a wrap. We're out. Bye.